When I was a boy, um, my family often took holidays in Bournemouth, England. It's in the south of England, like the warmest part of England, the warmest part of all of Britain. And it was a delightful place, lovely beaches and all of that. The one time we went there, we had crossed from Ireland in a ferry, and my dad was driving us to Bournemouth down from wherever we landed on England. And as we were driving, I'd been there before, and it didn't look very familiar. So we were kind of curious, and my mom actually said, Leslie, are we lost? Well, you know, that's a dangerous thing to ask a husband, because he'll just deny it, right? No, we're not lost. Well, all of a sudden, the terrain became really strange, and there were signs, like road signs, that said, stop, <laughs> do not proceed, turn back. You're entering British Army territory. And I'm thinking, we're going to get killed. And my mom is still saying, Leslie, we are lost. And he would say, we are not lost. I know where I'm going. So he had the right thing in mind. He knew where we wanted to go, right? We wanted to get to Bournemouth. That was everybody agreeing on that. But what was wrong was that he had the wrong mental map. And today we're going to talk about the idea of mental maps. It's going to be a kind of a key, um, you know, there may be like five or six key ideas through this series <clears throat> that we land on. And one is the whole idea of mental maps. So what is a mental map? John Mark Comer defines it like this, that, let's go back and actually see it. In the same way that we have mental maps for how to get to work or school or our favorite coffee shops, we have mental maps for all of life. Maps for our money, our sexuality, our relationships. Our mental maps are made up of a collection of ideas. So I'll let you just sort of mull that over because it, it's maybe a new concept or a different way of expressing something. It may sound like worldview to some of you, um, but this whole notion of mental maps is the idea um, that just as we know in our minds what we do routinely to get to what we would normally do, similarly in a macro sense, our whole life is kind of organized by our mental maps. The problem with my dad was that his mental map was messed up. The problem with us in this world is that our mental maps are messed up. So we come to the kind of perplexing question of what is wrong with me? Or what's wrong with us? And we'll come to some answers, but maybe the answers are a bit too simplistic. Uh, we might have said, well, we, we haven't sort of come along far enough as humankind, but surely we'll get better at this. Or surely we'll figure out the economics of our world. Surely we'll find ways to effect justice in our world, to show mercy in our world. Then we'll have fixed it. Uh, those are not fixes for what's wrong with us. What's wrong with us is a whole systemic problem, and that is the devil the flesh, and the world inspired. 
So we're going to be sort of stepping carefully through uh, those three categories. Andrew happily gave me the devil to talk about. Um, the devil is at the root of what's wrong with us. The devil is real, so we talked about that last Sunday. It, it, it's not a cute idea. Uh, it's not just something to joke about or caricature. He is a real being, and he hates your guts. He absolutely hates you. Uh, there is no good in him towards you. Uh, there is no relenting on his part as far as you're concerned. If you're in trouble, he loves it. If you're sick, he's even happier. If you're filled with all kinds of problems, he will rub his hands in glee. So we are sort of making him like one of us. He's not like one of us. He's a created being. He is a glorious being. Um, but he is the prince of this world, according to Jesus. So we started last week by hearing Jesus in the temptations talk back to the devil. The devil makes one claim. He says, if you will bow down and worship me, you can have all the kingdoms, all these kingdoms. And we said that what was obviously missing was Jesus' retort, where he might have said, these kingdoms are not yours to give. But he didn't say that, because it wasn't true. He is the king of this world. Now, he has been convicted and sentenced, and he is the dying dragon he is the wounded animal who is more ferocious now than he has ever been before. The problem with us, the way that we're messed up, is intensified by this person, this being, the devil. Let me just remind you of what these three things are that um, are complicating our lives and making it very difficult to, short, to sort through what, what it is about us that's messed up. The devil is the father of lies. Jesus said that. Um, he said he has been a liar from the beginning. And we're, we're talking about living no lies. It's not just a matter of being truthful people. That's not what the point of this is. The point is that we are living in a whole array of lies. The whole system around us is a system of lies. We believe the wrong things. Our mental maps have the wrong points of reference, and so we can't find our way out. Um, we've tried, and we will keep on trying, and we will sometimes do valiantly, but really, when it comes down to the very core of this issue of being messed up and having messed up ma mental, mental maps, um, we come back to the realization and the orthodox Christian view that there is a personal devil and he operates with deceptive ideas. Do you remember how that all began, even with Eve? What was, what was it that the devil tempted Eve about? He came to Eve with a question. Did God really say? And that's his MO. His MO is not necessarily to come out with blatant lies so that we would say, oh, right there, that's a lie, devil. But no, it, it's more the deceptive ideas that come with the devil saying, did God really say? Does God really mean? Is the Bible really God's word? Is Christian morality really relevant today? 
Are Christian ethics really practical today? See, it's not the blatant lies. It is the deceptive ideas that are sown into everything around us. And we begin to believe them. Um, Eve believed that the devil was correct and maybe wondering whether God really said that. And so we see that um, as the way that he operates all the way through time, all the way through the, the narrative of scriptures, that he brings deceptive lies into our paths, and we believe the deceptive lies. I heard someone say that um, when he watches TV with his little children, he teaches them every time they watch a program, and particularly when they watch commercials, to look back at the TV and say, really? To just, first of all, doubt that what is being said is true. Um, and we have come now into an era in which truth is absolutely negotiable and truth is relative. It is your truth. If I tell you that I believe something is the truth, that's a non-Canadian thing to say, right? Don't you tell me what is truth. I'll accept your truth and I'll tell you my truth but they become relative truths, and we find that truth itself has kind of been set aside as an objective reality, what we all used to believe. When we established universities, it was in the pursuit of knowledge of the truth. Now it's more a relative world in which we live, and it's your truth and my truth. And we need to learn how to discern deceptive ideas? How do I identify what ideas are deceiving us so that we have believed a lie and we're actually allowing that to form our mental image so that um, we might think, well, happiness would be for me to, let's say, uh, I'd, I'd like to have a really nice car. I'd like to have a really nice Lamborghini. And I'll begin to believe that having a nice Lamborghini would make me happy. So my mental map begins to get adjusted, and I'm thinking, how am I going to get enough money to get a Lamborghini? So I thought, Let's go, I'll go into the ministry, because that's a way to get enough money. <laughs> no. But see how the things, there may be things that are legitimate that we might want, and the way that we sort of plan to get there gets really messed up like it was for my dad. We finally did get to Bournemouth, by the way. Um, there were not tanks that accosted us on the, on the road. He finally admitted that we were lost, and we got it all sorted out. The second area in which we are complicated is that our desires are, after we have been deceived, our ideas, our, our desires become disordered. So that is the flesh. So we're talking about the world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil, the flesh, and the world. Um, my desires, because I have not been tuned up properly to the truth, my desires become disordered. And that is the life that is called living in the flesh, um, rather than living in the spirit, as we go to the, the teachings of Paul, for example. Then finally... We find that we are then part of a sinful society, the world. So what is wrong with us is that, first of all, we have been deceived and are being deceived. And after we have been deceived and are being deceived, we allow our flesh um, 
to sort of take the driver's seat instead of giving back to God in a submission sort of a lifestyle, um, the ability to, to check us out on what we are believing and whether or not it is true. That is a huge job. It is a lifelong job for us to really doubt that we immediately discern what's true or false, um, what's right and wrong. And we're going to talk today about how we get to the point where we are actually not messed up. Uh, and as Andrew said, it's not a, here's the thing you need to do, but it's living into a way of life, um, living into the way of following Jesus. And as we do, um, we find that the devil's lies are corrected, that our flesh um, gives up. And the battle that goes on in my life and in your life day by day is that the flesh um, is, is trying to convince us that the, the deceitful ideas by which we live are worth pursuing. So we could talk about sexuality, we could talk about all kinds of morality and realize that in our society, we are feeding our flesh, believing we're pursuing something that we want, and realizing that when we pursued what we thought we wanted, we actually ended up thoroughly disappointed, thoroughly defeated. And so in many, many areas of our lives, we need to kind of go back to the drawing board and say, okay, what if I believed here that I shouldn't have believed? And then what has my flesh done to make it complicated for me? And then after that, how is the world actually aiding and abetting my flesh to believe the lies that have been sown to me and are sown all around me? So that it's kind of one of those, oh my goodness, are you serious? How are we, how are we gonna ever get ourselves straightened out? I mean, as Paul said, I'm a wretched man. Who's going to deliver me from this incredible dilemma that I have? That even when I know what I should do, I can't do it. And when I know what I shouldn't do, I do do it. It's, oh, wretched man, who's going to deliver me from this? So we might come to that point and say, you know, you're right. I mean, I think I, I wouldn't even know where to start because it seems to me that I really have been deceived by false ideas. I, I really then have sort of allowed my flesh to pursue those wrong ideas in ways that have been harmful to me, to my family, to my friends. And to add to that, all of society is aiding and abetting in this terrible war that I find myself fighting. So what do you do if you're in that kind of a situation? Here's a verse from First John. Um, that I think is really instructive. He says, young men, he has complimented the young men, the old men, and so on in the church. He says, young men, you're strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Well, right there is the start, isn't it? It's possible to overcome the evil one. It's possible to overcome Satan. We saw last week that if we resist him, he will flee from us. We saw last week that he is a finite being. He's not everywhere. He has minions. There are demons all around us who are working with him and for him. And John writes to these early Christians, and he says, young men, 
I'm really delighted in you because you have overcome the evil one. You've overcome the evil one. The way that he says they have done that is that the word of God abides in you. If you're interested in, in doing little word studies, John, both in his gospel record and in his letters, loves the word abide. Um, it shows up as remain or abide, um, and in all kinds of ways, his theology is a theology around abiding, abiding in Christ. Um, when he's talking in John 14 about the Father's house, it's a, just a passage all about abiding. To abide means to feel at home. It means to settle into something. So John says, I'm really proud of you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. And you know how you've done it, right? It's by the word of God abiding in you. So we're coming today to the fact that the, the revelation of Scripture is the beginning to unraveling the mess of our lives. And it is not as simple as saying, here's a proof text, here's a verse that I've memorized. When I was a teenager, I was part of a quizzing team, and I memorized the book of James. I could quote the whole book of James, can't do it now, but I could win quizzes because I knew the book of James inside out. I have no idea what James means at that point in my life, but I could memorize, right? So that... That's not what we're talking about. We're not looking um, for a new way of a topical memory system or something where you can say, oh, that temptation, bang, there's the verse. It's not that. It is more about this idea of being at home in the Bible, of settling into the Bible, and the Bible settling into us so that we feel that we belong in the world of the Bible. We feel that we belong in the truth of the Bible. And John says that's a delightful thing. When we come back to where we began last Sunday, we have the temptations of Jesus. And it is Satan with his usual ploy, just sort of suggesting some things that, have you ever thought about this, that you could turn those stones into bread? You could do that, right? Or, and in each case, the way that Jesus responds to him is by saying, it is written. Now, again, it's not Jesus finds a proof text and pulls it out and sort of lobs it at the devil, but because Jesus is at home in, in the Bible, because the Bible is at home in Jesus, um, he is fueled up to be able to respond to the, Bible, to the, to the devil in saying, Here's the way that I'm going to be able to refute your lies. It is written. It has been written. This is the truth. This is something in which I abide. This is something which abides in me. And the end of the passage that we find in, in two of the gospel records is that Satan leaves and says, okay, I'll find a better time to come back. Why? How was it that Jesus was able to model for us what we find in the believers that John writes to, and Satan is turned in his tracks and says, I'll have to come back some other way, some other time. It is the abiding of God's word. 
in the heart, in the mind, in the soul, in the being that Jesus was. We're going to talk about spiritual disciplines. And Andrew has already suggested to you that uh, as we make our way through this, we're going back to ancient things. We're going back to seeing what kind of a life would it be that would actually be able to see the messed up order of things put back in place, put into the right place. So some of the language that you may be familiar with is spiritual disciplines, a rule of life. Um, essentially what we're going to talk about is reordering our mental maps. Is to say, what kinds of practices would help me write a new map for, for my mind, for my heart, for my soul? And we'll talk about the disciplines that have been classically part of victorious Christian living. Ancient disciplines, none of them is new. None of them is a catchy methodology, right? Each of them is a, is a deeply rooted discipline of life whereby we are regularly checking the devil, the flesh, and the world. And coming out the other end saying, hey, we're, we're at Bournemouth. The thing that I really wanted. So, so we're, we're not trying to sell um, you know, a, a Christian life that is more uh, honorable or, or more um, rewardable. We're wanting to promote the kind of life that Jesus said was living life and living it to the fullest. And one of the greatest lies that Satan has brought to you is that this stuff is kind of boring and it's not what you want, but it's right, so you should probably do it. Uh, the whole sort of demeanor of life that says, I'm actually living a righteous life and I love it. It's not as bad as I said it would be. It's not, not dancing, I don't dance, I don't chew, I don't go with girls that do. It's actually, it's a fun life. There's a lot of dancing. There's a lot of music in my life. And I didn't think that would be the case. Honestly, people, when you tell them you're a churchgoer, they're kind of like, okay, (laughs) who else can I talk to, right? And what we need to show is a life that is non-anxious. It'll be actually the opposite of being anxious. It is to be free. It's, It's to be joyful. It's to be peaceful to the point that people should point that out and say, I don't know what it is about you, but you are a happy person. You're a joyful person. You're a dancing person. So as we think about this, I want us just to think briefly about um, two or three of the disciplines of the Christian life classically. When, when we look at Jesus and examine how he was able to speak back to the devil, um, even in the middle of the frenzy of life around him, we properly ask the question, how did Jesus get to that condition of life? Because the life that Jesus lived is the life that we can live. In fact, Jesus said to his disciples, um, it's better if I go away. Because if I don't go away, the comforter won't come. And if I leave, he will. 
And greater, you'll do the things that I've done, and even greater things. So the life of Jesus is available to us. A life that does greater things than Jesus did is available to us. How did Jesus get himself in the headspace and the soul space to live such a joyful, free life? One of the keys is the whole idea of silence. Um, we're told many times through the gospel records that early in the morning, Jesus went into the mountains to pray, to be quiet and to pray. The three disciplines that I want to just share briefly with you are silence, solitude, and scripture. If we want to get to be non-anxious people, if we want to live against the devil, the flesh, and the world, we will do well to begin with silence and solitude. Many of us don't love silence. We get uncomfortable with silence. Many of us are not very good at solitude because it's been 20 minutes now. Is that long enough? Right? Silence and solitude. Early in the morning, Jesus went into the mountains to pray. He went to be with his Father. And out of the strength of his time with the Father, he would live his life. Um, we've talked often about the idea that we need to live as people who don't rest from work, but who work from rest, that we begin with rest. And out of rest issues our lives. That's what John 15 is all about, abiding in Christ. It's that when we abide in him, then we can have fruit. But we get it turned around the other way many times. We think, you know, we need to do things. And then we'll, we'll relax when it's all over. We'll rest afterwards. Um, this, that's not the way it ought to be. Um, our first day of existence was Jesus' rest, exemplified by the Father's rest on Sabbath. God worked all week and then rested. But the first day we existed, we started resting. It's like we said, okay, what do we do now? And God says, okay, first thing, just rest. There's a rest for the people of God, says the writer to Hebrews. Silence, solitude, and scripture. So we often will hear about silence and solitude in, in the monastic movements, in, in the writings through the Middle Ages. Um, and they, they had an ability for solitude and silence that was uncanny, but that is, is very appealing to us. Where is the time in your life where you're able to be silent alone? Maybe for some of you at 6 o'clock every morning and there's a place that you go. Maybe it's somewhere in nature that you go and you're simply silent and you're quiet. Sometimes we have to sit long enough for the voices to stop talking, for God to be able to whisper because we've stopped talking. It's like I feel many times that in, in prayer, God is saying, could you stop talking and listen? You, you keep asking me things. I want to tell you answers, and you won't listen. H how do you hear those answers? Nine times out of ten, those answers are in Scripture. And because Scripture has been stored away in your mind, in your heart, when you have something to say to God to which he would like to respond, 
it will inevitably be some scripture that will just come into your mind. And I play little games in my head where I think, that couldn't possibly have been God. That was me. Like, um, I've just read that enough times that it popped into my head. It's like, you know, it was an association thing. I thought about this, and therefore that verse came. And then God will say something that kind of refutes that, and I'm going, okay, that, that was kind of cool. That didn't seem to just come from nowhere. It seemed to come from God. Silence, be silent long enough. Be alone somewhere long enough. And let scripture be the topic of conversation. Three psalms are called psalms of the word. Psalm 1, Psalm 19, and Psalm 119. So it's easy to remember. In Psalm 119, here's here's what we read. How can a young man keep his way pure? And and we, we tend to think of sin like sin is the dirty thing, like it's a sex thing or something, right? So how do you stay pure? So it's about purity. It's not about that. It's about having clean minds, clean hearts, clean souls, um, fresh souls, renewed souls. And how, how, how can you keep that? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not, do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word... I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Treasured in my heart is the same as the word of God abiding in you. Do you love scriptures? I mean, not just, you know, you read it because you have a scripture you have to read every day and that's your routine. Do you find yourself loving it? I've I've been at this a long time and it it never gets old. Uh, I often think I'll pull an old sermon out I'll pull it out and think, did I really believe that? Did I really say that stuff? Because this passage is new to me. It's fresh to me. Scripture is like that. It is, it is living. Um, it is active. It is um, properly understood to be all kinds of different literatures. Um, it, it's something that is always engaging because there's always debate. And there ought to be debate. We ought to be struggling on, you know, the Bible open on the table and you say, what do you think that means? And why do you think it means that? And what do you think we have to do if that's true? Um, always struggling like that. Uh, my mother-in-law was once part of a small group I led. And I was trying for people to do this, you know, just to wrestle a bit with some question. So she finally looked across the room at me and said, Ian, do you know the answer? I said, Yes. She said, well, for goodness sake, tell us. None of this, what do you think? Right? Do you love scripture? Um, it is lovable. And when you begin to find the life of scripture, when you are silent and alone and allowing scripture to be the topic, the content, um, you will be becoming the kind of person you want to be. You will be forming the right mental maps in your mind. Um, David, if he wrote this, was someone who had lots of time with his sheep all by himself in the fields, on the hills. And some of the most beautiful meditations that we've ever seen have been from David, who just was alone and quiet and observed both 
natural things that God was revealing to him and the things that God must have been saying to him as well through his life and circumstances. How do we become people who are not anxious? Well, we figure out the milieu in which we are living and we're, we're not uninformed of the force of the devil and the force and power of the flesh and the aiding and abetting of a sinful society. We don't stand apart from in judgment of our society. We love as God loved every person that he brought into existence in his image. So we're not proud of ourselves, we're not aloof. Um, We know ourselves too well, um, you know, to get all huffed up over, you know, we do some things well. We don't judge, but we want to be transformed from the inside out by the Holy Spirit as he uses God's word. Another place um, that I remember well is a holiday place. It's Asoyas, British Columbia. And Asoyas is the only actual desert in Canada. So if you want a good summer holiday and hopefully no rain, Asoyas is the place. So when our kids were small, we used to go there every summer with several families and enjoy Asuyas. Every year, uh, because we went the same time, it was the birthday of Craig, one of my friends who was one of the guys with us. And his dad would always come to celebrate his birthday, his mom and dad. His dad was named Bob Murdoch, and Bob was an an elder in his assembly and, and a beautiful Christian man. But the thing that I remember most about him is that he would always find me and he would sort of draw me down to walk along the lake or something like that. And he would ask this question. What are you learning in scripture these days? And I I knew the question was coming every time, so I got myself prepared. But more interesting was his response because he would always tear up and he would talk about what the Lord has been saying to him in scriptures. And I thought, I, that's the old person I want to become. Somebody who is delighted in scriptures. Who says, yeah, whatever else is happening in sports and the news and media, whatever it is. What about scripture? What is it saying to you now that's fresh and delightful and wonderful? I want to be that kind of person. I want not to be someone who is being deluded by the devil. I want not to be somebody whose flesh is taking control. I want not to be somebody for whom this sinful society aids and abets all that's bad in him. I want to be non-anxious, someone who practices solitude, scripture, silently, someone who's being changed from the inside out. But it starts by being vigilant, by saying, you know what, that's all true. And... As each of us looks inside, maybe we say, boy, I, I, I find in my life examples of where I have believed a lie. I have problems in some areas of my life that I think are flesh problems. I'm not walking in the spirit in that area. I'm walking in the flesh. And I, I am not vigilant enough at all about how society around me is aiding and abetting my messed up life. Why don't we pray? Father, for the life of Jesus, we give you such thanks. Um, There's so much admiration for the way that he 
lived a balanced life, where he lived a life of peace, lived a life of um, effectiveness for your glory. And we thank you that he now offers us his very life to live in us, through us. And we pray that we will take seriously um, that his enemy is still our enemy, but that he knew how to resist, and so do we. So we pray, Father, for the Spirit's quickening. Um, and we thank you as well for the words of Holy Scripture, for the beauty of this book. Um, for the teaching 